Welcome to Friendo Podcast, hosted by me, Amanda Muse. As a YouTuber, I've shared my life online for the last eight years, and now I'm excited to learn about you. Friendo celebrates people and their stories, from interesting jobs to unique passions and curious life skills that the world should hear about. Community is everything. Let's do this. As you mindlessly scroll through Instagram or watch YouTube videos or even TikTok, how does this make you feel about yourself? What about your food and how you eat and how this ties into your self-worth? I will admit, there have been times that I have felt less than when I've witnessed other people's meals and felt like I'm not doing enough to make beautiful, nutritious meals for myself, let alone for my family. Anyone else ever felt like this? The way food is portrayed online has shifted these last few years, and naturally, this is going to have an impact on us, how we eat, how we cook, how we share recipes, some of it definitely positive, and there are also some negative impacts. Full disclosure, people often ask Dean to start a YouTube channel about food, and we've considered it, but honestly, it is too much work. Like, over the top, you need a team and a fake kitchen because the bar is so high on what we, you know, the audience expect from our online chefs. I know several food content creators and I've worked with many of them over the years and they have teams like this is not something that can be easily handled by a party of one. Also, the other side of it is that not every meal that I make is an extravagant creation totally normal, by the way, but it's tricky to put yourself out there, your normal self, you know, to a world of highly curated food bloggers. It's kind of scary. So I'm curious about you. Have you posted meals online, recipes? Do you watch food bloggers and internet chefs? And how does it make you feel? Are you loving the innovation and sense of community in the posts? Or does it make you feel like you can't post your simple Tuesday dinner because you don't measure up? My guest today is Eve Turo-Paul. She is a globally recognized thought leader who focuses on the intersection of food trends, the digital age, and well-being. She graduated from Amherst College and is a frequent keynote speaker, a Forbes contributor, and the author of A Taste of Generation Yum, How the Millennial Generation's Love for Organic Fare, Celebrity Chefs, and Microbrews Will Help Make or Break the Future of Food. Eve utilizes her extensive empirical research to advise businesses and organizations on how to connect with and better serve people in this digital age. She lives in Chicago with her husband and her daughter. And today we are going to be talking about her experience in this industry and also about her new book called Hungry, Avocado Toast, Instagram Influencers, and Our Search for Connection and Meaning, which is out now and can be found wherever you buy books. I will be linking her book in the show notes if you're curious. This conversation was very interesting from the perspective as a creator like myself, you know, listening and interacting through that lens. And then also just, you know, regular Amanda who scrolls mindlessly through Instagram and consumes content just like everybody else. So I hope you enjoy this conversation. Welcome to the podcast, Eve. Thanks so much for having me. 
I think that this is, first of all, everyone loves food. Everyone loves to talk about food. Um, but there's a really interesting dynamic of how food is being presented online and how we're consuming that part of it. So tell me a little bit about yourself and how you came to write this, this book. Yeah, for sure. So I have been doing research on the why behind the biggest food and lifestyle trends for the past decade. And it all started honestly by evaluating my own behavior because I didn't understand why I was spending so much of my discretionary time and income on food. Uh, I'm a millennial. I graduated from college in 2009. Uh, I was very much dealing with the impact of the economic recession, yet I found myself in graduate school in New York City around 2010, you know, in one of the most expensive cities in uh, the United States, and I was choosing to spend what little discretionary time and income I had on really fancy cheese from Whole Foods or uh, an <laughs> underground dinner. And I was starting, you know, at that point, that was just when Instagram was starting. So I was beginning to, to realize that people were taking a lot of pictures of their food, sharing it online. It was really the start of, of what we consider food porn. Um, you know, those ooey gooey photos of food, the things that make you drool. Um, and I was just confused by it. And once I started to dig into my own behavior and started to interview people around the world about it, what I began to understand is that our relationship to food is unique, uh, uniquely personal, but that it has drastically shifted over the last decade. Um, and that our relationship to food and foodie culture is in direct relationship as well to our mental health our mental well-being, our relationship to technology. And this topic ultimately was way more fascinating than I had anticipated. And therefore, I've been studying it for 10 years plus at this point, and I am still not bored of it. Uh, so I've written two books on the topic. The second one, Hungry, uh, just came out this past summer. And in it, I'm exploring how the relationship between the digital age, our well-being, and the top food and lifestyle trends. And uh, it's really become, you know, unfortunately a bit more relevant during the past year. I really look into the impact of anxiety, impact of loneliness um, on, uh, on the way that we choose to spend uh, our time, what, what foods we're deciding to eat, what pictures of foods we're sharing with others, all of those different things. Uh, so that's my story. I think being a creator and in this space for about the time that you've been researching it, I, you know, I've been watching from the outside. Well, I guess I am on the inside, but watching the way that food has been shown. And so, you know, I started my gig on YouTube and that's where I kind of mm -hmm. work primarily. And over the years, you know, there's been so many different types of trends in content. The hauls, the how I do my makeup, the what I eat in the days started yep. to pop up. And I remember thinking while watching the first few of them and being like, okay, that's I, uh, certainly not eating, eating enough fruit in my life or something. You know, I'm seeing yeah. all, <laughs> and everything is like so healthy. I use air quotes because it's, it just looks perfect. And of course that has become so much more of an aesthetic now in the way that people show food. So I remember back in the day, I was like, well, I'm going to try my hand at this, but I'm going to go from it from like a mom of tiny humans. Like, what am I actually eating? Is it going to be chicken nuggets? Is it going to be maybe a couple pieces of spinach? I don't know. And I definitely felt this responsibility. Like I'm telling people who follow mm -hmm. me that this is what I'm eating. So 
if it's not perfect, Mm -hmm. I almost needed like a little bit of a warning, like, Hey, heads up. I'm legit a busy mom. Who's going to eat this grilled cheese. Cause I'm making them for the kids, but like, you should probably add some other things to your diet. Cause I felt this responsibility. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's curious to see how these trends have kind of ebbed and flowed. And then also having watched these trends over time, how you have almost like these people coming out of this culture of sharing food and, and talking, talking about how it's impacted them negatively. Like there's this Mm -hmm. one specific creator, there's a term now I should have looked up the term as I'm saying it, cause I'm for sure not going to remember it, but it's almost like this obsession with what you eat and the documenting it and having to be perfect to showcase the video. You probably know what I'm talking orthorexia? about. Orthorexia. Are you talking That's about the word? Yes. yes. I was like, yeah. is that the right? Tell me what that means. I'm, I'm like, I, I was, I just took my pen out because I'm like, okay, well, you, while you're talking, I have so many different thoughts going through my mind of, of topics we should, we should touch on together. Um, but orthorexia is one of them. And, and, you know, we're at this really interesting point in culture. I'm just going to back up a little bit Please to provide do, more yes. context to the conversation. So, and this is what I've done in my own work, right? It's like looking at what's happening today, but then saying, well, why is that? And then getting an answer and saying, well, why is that? <laughs> and so a lot of my work over the last, especially four years, has really gone back to evolutionary psychology, evolutionary biology, looking at, well, what world did we evolve for? Um, how did our minds develop, right? What, what is built into us? And then how is that in relationship or in juxtaposition to the world that we actually are in today? And when it comes to social eating, Homo sapiens, right, are one of the only creatures that actually collectively cooks and sits down to a meal. And uh, during my research for this book, I talked to the anthropologist Robin Dunbar. I'm not sure if if you or your listeners will be familiar with the Dunbar number. Um, no, I haven't heard of this okay. myself. All right. I'm not going to go on the total well, now I'm curious. down there. <laughs> um, but essentially his theory is that you can't really know more than a hundred people. And, and that's based on the number of people that that we used to be in tribes with. And especially over the last 50 years, the kind of tribal communities that people have always maintained have started to disintegrate. So we are now less likely to be visiting religious institutions. We're less likely, though it doesn't feel like it from watching the news, we're actually less likely to hold a fervent political view, um, more independence. We're less likely to volunteer, less likely to know our neighbors, and we're less likely to be eating with people. But we have an inherent desire to eat with others, to share in this experience. And it is a way that we shape our own identity. It's actually a way that we uh, receive an endorphin rush, uh, dopamine. You are physiologically um, uh, benefited by having those kinds of experiences. And so in this digital age, we have found other ways of convening with other people. So that's kind of at the base of why we find pleasure in logging online to watch a YouTube video uh, or an Instagram live of somebody eating a meal or reporting on the meal that they ate, right? It is, it's tapping into that like really evolutionarily foundational part of, of what makes us human. But on the other side of things, right? We also want to feel liked. We want to feel accepted. And, uh, you know, social media is not real life. 
you can edit it. <laughs> you can choose what you're putting up and what you're not putting up. And this ability to curate has created this kind of false reality for a lot of people. And I know your content is unique because you show the, the things that are perhaps less flattering. Um, I do. But that's... <laughs> Sometimes I regret that decision, yeah. but I do. <laughs> you know, but that's really not most, I would say, especially food influencers or mom influencers, right? I have actually, as a new mom, found it difficult to follow a lot of mom influencers because I think like, geez, Louise, I really just don't have my stuff together like compared to these women. Um, and it's been really interesting to do research on the rising um, rates of perfectionism, especially amongst mm. Gen Zers. Um, but we're also living in a time where we have so many people telling us what to eat and what not to eat. And access to an overabundance of information really about the foods that we're eating, yet those expert systems uh, of people who we used to trust, our religious leaders, our tribal leaders, our government leaders, rates of trust in those experts is down. And so we don't know who to trust and who to listen to, yet we have all this information coming in at us from a gazillion different places saying, you know, you should be eating soy. No, soy is going to give you cancer. No, soy is going to, you know, is ruining the rainforests. Yes, soy is so much better than eating beef, right? And you don't know what to do. And so that has led to orthorexia, which is actually the fear of food. It is oh, this. interesting. Yeah. It, it's like not wanting to make a bad decision. Huh. Right? Like so much information coming in, you're like, I don't know how to filter this, what to trust. You know, some so many people are telling me that by eating the wrong thing, it's going to have this catastrophic impact either on my well-being, my child's well-being, around the planet's well-being. Like, what the heck do I do? And so, yes, that there that was a very long story to get you to orthopedia. I love it. <laughs> I love it. It's so important. Okay, because I remember, and I feel like we're probably going to jump around, listeners. You just have to like listen, listen, yep. hold tight yep. here. But I remember <laughs> one of my first videos as a new mom was talking about the shame that I felt in not having the ability. It was like I just my levels of of ability to make her her homemade food. I just couldn't do it. And I was like the shame and the, and the pressure and this responsibility to share my life online that I felt, I was like, mm -hmm. I just can't, I can't bring myself to do it. And you know what? I'm going to buy some of these squishy snacks and I'm sure she'll be fine. You know? And I remember having this kind of silly laugh about it, but it was something that I felt so like overwhelmed about because there was so much perfection being shown online. And mm -hmm. everybody's, if you are a parent, everybody's parenting journey looks different. The stresses that you feel are different. I mean, shoot back then we didn't even talk about postpartum even that much. And that was only mm. nine years ago, you know? So it's amazing. Just that element, like the perfection part that mm -hmm. comes in. And I suppose you're right. A lot of content that is especially highly consumed does look a certain way is really feeling perfect in many ways. Mm -hmm. And so as a consumer, if you have the ability to think critically about the content, you're absorbing, you can look at something and be like, okay, you ate a bowl of, you know, steamed spinach for breakfast. Okay. But like, is that every day, <laughs> you know, like, I don't know about, but maybe a 14 year old consuming that same content is, does not have that same filter. doesn't have that same life experience to be able to look at something and say, that's not real life or even the volume of the food that sometimes shows up in these trendy, um, these trendy videos, like 
let's talk about some of these, these trends, for example. So I, we talked about the, what I eat in the days. Mm-hmm. Then there's this thing called mukbang, which mm-hmm. is my understanding is like, it's watching people eat. It's talking while you're eating. Maybe you yes. even know more about it than yes. I do. It's, 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 uh, eating broadcasting. Um, that it's a trend that took off in South Korea. It is now becoming more popular in China as well as in Canada, the United States, Brazil. Um, and it is usually somebody who's eating a very large quantity of food. There's often an ASMR element to it. Um, but when I was doing research for this book, I actually went and shadowed a, a mukbang uh, broadcast jockey in South Korea, and I was able to talk to her about the culture of mukbang and what uh, the popularity is really based in. Um, and it was it was totally fascinating because it it is about food and it isn't, right? In large part about loneliness. So, <laughs> isn't loneliness uh, a huge undercurrent of a lot of yeah. what is posting online? Even you know, it makes so much sense what you said earlier about just our desire to eat and want to eat with others and the feeling. I mean, I know I've even said the words, I don't enjoy cooking, but if I'm cooking for people Mm -hmm. like other people, I find that enjoyable. I love to see people eat. I love my favorite thing is watching my kids eat their food and like how enjoyable that is, you know? So interesting that that undercurrent um, is loneliness. Did you know we've released a shop where you can support Frendo? Check out hellofrendo.com and explore. That's H-E-L-L-O-F-R-I-E-N-D-O.com and shop mugs, shirts, stickers, hoodies, and more. We're constantly adding new goodies for you. Your purchase directly supports the show and the work involved in creating it for your ears. So thank you. Check out hellofrendo.com. All right, back to the show. There's even that element of um, like overconsumption and like these, I mean, I mentioned in the chatting and emails, I'm like these giant smoothie bowls. Like, I don't know Mm -hmm. if I could actually finish that in one sitting. (laughs) So like, you know. It's interesting in the UK, actually, there was a study that was about the ramifications of food photography on food waste in the UK. And they found that it actually was contributing to food waste because people were going to the store, buying particular ingredients to create a dish. And like, you know, sometimes it's going to look better if there's a lot of something on your plate. And and so people, you know, take making the dish in order to essentially get the likes as a performative aspect, but then only eating about a quarter of it and then chucking the rest. Um, And there's a ton of stories now about... um, the food influencers in particular who um, who are eating things like those super shakes or freak shakes that were a big thing a couple of years ago, where it's like the you know milkshake with a, a donut and a slice of pizza and Captain Crunch on top. Um, you know, people would go and take a picture of it, have a bite, and then and then toss it out. So anyway, there's a lot of you know there's a lot of performance in this, and for many of us, it's super entertaining. There just has to be an understanding though that this isn't, it's not real, right? There's, you know, even the person who's posting about the bowl of spinach that they're having for breakfast, well, chances are that person was really hungry <laughs> later. Um, and, and maybe they were like also having a hot pocket and just, they didn't take a picture of that. <laughs> 100% that is happening. It's true. And it's interesting, like that, um, like the, the, as the creator, the person who's posting this, you know, that feeling of wanting to have this performative type of 
photo and you know, you're going to get the likes, yeah. even though it's not genuine. And then having this inauthentic experience on like, that's got to be a mess of emotions that they're creating too. Like having to live up to this hype that you've created, like that's so much pressure. I know for me, I find pressure just to like post something, Mm -hmm. let alone create a facade. And I've often said like, what you get is what you get. When you meet me in real life, I'm the same. I probably just curse a little more because it's I don't have to edit that out or I can't edit it out. <laughs> um, but to to try to live up to some weird bar that you set for yourself for years and years and years seems really stressful. Um, I also know on the flip side of it, like food creators, just the creation of content around food is so hard <laughs> because yeah, it is the bar is so high. Like yeah. The lighting has to be perfect. I don't even know if I know how to cut things properly, right? Like there's mm-hmm. all of this pressure to be this, to make it look so great, right? Yeah. I mean, there's there's something to this too that I think is important to comment on, which is that that pressure of perfectionism and performance is not just relevant for a, you know, as you call them creators, mm. right? It's relevant for kids in high school. And Again, for Hungry, I went back to my former high school just outside of Chicago and spent a week shadowing students and a bunch of different, I chose different kind of cliques <laughs> of students to shadow. It was really fascinating to, you know, at lunchtime, sit down with a group of girls who were talking about how they decide what to do on the weekends. And one of them said, well, you know, whatever, we'll go to X, Y, and Z place, and then we'll make a picnic and we'll go to the beach because it's a really great photo up. And then we're going to do this. And I was like, wait, 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 wait. You are making your weekend plans based on what will look good on Instagram. And she was like, yes. (laughs) And then I went and shadowed a different group, right? The next day hanging out also, you know, lunchtime is the best time to, to talk to anybody. Um, and they were talking about, uh, f- you know, body editing apps mm. and that girls in the school, especially, and I'm sure that the boys as well, were using these, these body um, editing apps, photo editing apps. And some of them were saying, you know, it's, it's kind of crazy because you show up to class and we know that that's not what you look like. Um, but people feel the pressure to do it anyway. So that their online identity is kind of this, um, this, this, idea of who perhaps they want to be, um, in the eyes of, of others, right. Who they think they need to be in order to be socially accepted. But anyway, I think it's important just to note that that kind of performative pressure is not just relevant for people who are, you know, making their living, creating content, but this is relevant for any child, any adult who is spending time, uh, on Instagram, on, on Twitter, on Facebook, even LinkedIn, right? You can think about this from a professional sense. So, uh, you know, if if anyone is can relate to this, don't don't think you're alone. This is pretty much the experience of everybody I talk to around the world. I love that you brought that up because you can tell through what lens I'm looking at it, and mm-hmm. you know, having little ones who are not so little anymore. Like my nine-year-old has got access to a few apps. Mm -hmm. I'm very hyper strict, which is crazy considering the work that I do, but I just, I know that there's all these feelings that can come from sharing yourself. Mm -hmm. Um, not just a regular person taking a picture, the pressure of how many likes you get versus what are people going to think of you in that outfit or what you're posting or how you're consuming food and all of these things. But I'm curious now about 
So you you spoke you speak to these kids, and there's this pressure to um, build your life around a really great post. And um, I must admit, it's kind of shocks me that young people would be thinking about the food element of it as well. Oh, but yeah. that's just my that's bad Amanda. Like, come on now. I guess because I'm still in the habit of like making all my kids' foods, but you get to a point where you want it to look cool, and maybe mom's not making you the right avocado toast, right? Well, and right. So- I mean, one of the girls who I'd spoken with had made paleo energy balls the week before and had posted that online so that people could see, you know, that she was making a recipe that was actually from one of her favorite food bloggers. And this is this is a whole other side of it, right? Which is that who you follow then becomes a part of your identity and an expression of your value systems, um, which is like a whole other angle here. Um, but in that same conversation with, with uh, a group of, of young women talking to them about, you know, how do they decide what to do on the weekends? And one of them said, well, then we're going to go to velvet taco because their tacos are really beautiful. And when I was in high school, I didn't really eat out. You know, maybe every once in a while I would go somewhere with friends, but we we ate what you know what our parents made us or what we defrosted in the microwave. Um, and that the, the role of food culture has changed so significantly for young people to the point that they know where to go in downtown Chicago, which from where I grew up is forty five minutes. Um, where to go to get the most you know, Insta-worthy tacos. Um, But there were also separate conversations with another group uh, of young women about Mary Berry and the Great British Bake Off and and talking about their favorite food influencers to follow. Um, And it's just, you know, again, I'm endlessly fascinated by this topic and and not just looking at it as, you know, well, Mary Berry is is super popular, but well, why is Mary Berry so popular? You know, why, why are why is a 16 year old in the suburbs of Chicago obsessed with Mary Berry? Right. I don't even know who Mary Berry is. Oh, you don't heard of the great bake off. (laughs) I'm like, wait, she was, she was the, one of the original judges on the the great British baking show. She is in her eighties, just a very soft spoken, very prim and proper British woman who is an excellent baker. (laughs) Interesting. And young people are, like consuming her content, like, like they would. Yeah. Wow. Like, like I did of sync. <laughs> wow. Yeah. I, you know, but it's, it's this really interesting thing where, you know, then on the weekends, they're going to make a Mary Berry recipe and then they're going to post that online. And then, you know, that's an expression in some way of the fact that they are dedicated to DIY of making things themselves of tradition uh, of learning about, even for some people, it's about learning about their British heritage or a celebration of British culture. For other people, it's getting offline. Ironically enough, it's about time offline to then showcase it online later. Um, but still appreciating, right, the two or three hours that it takes to make a lot of these recipes where you're not looking at a phone. You're just with yourself in the kitchen, uh, in your body, Um so there's so many different elements to this. And uh, I, I I find it endlessly interesting. It is. I definitely feel like initially at the start, I was like thinking about all the negatives from following mm-hmm. people online and how this can negatively impact people. But you just listed a bunch of really great positive things too, which is, you know, I find 
people sometimes flock to channels because they're either lacking a certain mm-hmm. thing in their life. Maybe it's a grandma figure, you know, and it's right. Not- exactly. Yeah. Not having had that experience of baking or, um, you know, learning how to do really interesting stuff that like your parents maybe can't stop and drop and show you how to make a gravy. Maybe maybe they don't have those kind of, you know, elders in their community to teach them those things. And this is, you know, this really is kind of going back to, again, like, what do we all need to feel well? And we don't have these social needs being met, especially now, right, during COVID. And what's interesting is that some of the ways that we have tried to fill those gaps are productive, such, you know, as the case of learning something um, online that you couldn't learn otherwise, connecting with people who are boosting your self-esteem, helping you become a better version of yourself. But there is this other nefarious, you know, flip side to it, which is um, the, the lack of genuine connection, I think a lot of people getting the wrong idea of what is actually achievable, who people are, you know, that that a lot of this is edited out, um, you know, a lot of people's mistakes, errors, things that they're embarrassed by um, are just not going to be shared online, which can create a false uh, concept of reality which can be damaging for a lot of people. So there's really two sides to the coin. You know, it's like anything you can you can mightily benefit emotionally from these kinds of relationships. And on the other side, it can, it can be a false promise in many ways. And I, I really appreciate looking at it from those both angles, because I think that, you know, even just the other day, I was having a discussion online about consuming tech and how, you know, we can be so strict with some rules in one way, but then if you look at children and technology, you know, it's not all one size fits all, not Mm -hmm. all tech consumed is the same. Some is passive, Mm -hmm. some is you're learning things, same with cooking, same with food. Um, but like you, I really love that awareness factor of why am I doing this thing? You know, for me as a creator, what's my responsibility here to be sharing with people? I mean, I know I just recently did a little short video, so I couldn't get too real in the video, but there was this one part where um, it was using, you know, one of those mixers and Mm -hmm. we had like the butter and then we put in the sugar. And I always joke because like, I'm not the book baker in the family. Like Dean, my husband, he's the one that knows all the things. Mm. So he sets it up for me. And then I come in, (laughs) I turned it on. (laughs) That flower went like poof. I just looked at him and I was like, if looks could kill. And I laughed so hard during the edit because I'm just like furious. But of course I had to cut that part out mm-hmm. because you're not exactly throwing an F-bomb around, right, right. Um, <laughs> you know, a fancy schmancy video. But it's, you know, I love showing that real part in the cooking where I'm like, you guys know I don't cook like this all the time. Like this is a one-off. This is going to be... but. It's, I feel that like, I don't want people to consume my content and feel like they're trying to level up to some standard that I don't even actually attain. Um, And so when I watch people, I'm like hyper aware of that. And even just the pressure that it must be to be in that situation when you are an expert chef or recipe maker or all of these things, and you think you might be hitting a certain audience but how are you resonating with that younger generation? So as an example, a woman that's working for me, she's a younger woman. Um, you know, when we were looking at your book and what you were sharing, she was super fascinated, but from had a completely different, you know, question that popped. Yeah. Exactly. Perspective that popped up. And she was, you know, wondering, you know, 
have you noticed a change in this next generation's relationship with food? Um, You know, being that they're raised with different inputs from social media and then, and I guess it's what you were mentioning, like rather than just what their parents are teaching them, Mm -hmm. like seeking this, the good, the bad out. Um, I know you touched on it a little bit, but you know, what can this younger generation do now with all of this information? Yes. Um, so first of all, just to, to go back to your original point here about, you know, consuming this information, I will say that my reaction after doing the research for this book was actually to curate, better curate my Instagram feed. I asked myself a question of like, is, am I following this person to feel envious or to learn and find pleasure and camaraderie in something? And so I like seriously edited down who I follow, um, it's like mostly home gardeners now and you. <laughs> um, <laughs> I love that. So important. And, the boundaries, right? And yeah. like, how do I feel when I'm looking at this person? Do I feel bad or am I right. feeling inspired? Right. right. Absolutely. Um, so just to kind of like throw that, that, you know, action item in here. Um, but per, per your assistance question, it's a great question. The re- way that Gen Zers on average interact with food is drastically different than even millennials because social media only came into existence when millennials were already entering adulthood. Whereas Gen Zers really don't know a world without it. And the young people who I talk to are so much more informed about food than I was until, you know, post-college when I became, you know, responsible for my food decisions. I've talked to a number of young people who are cooking things that their parents don't know about. Uh, I interviewed a young girl at the time she was 11, um, living in the suburbs of Atlanta. And I asked, well, what's your favorite thing to cook? And she said, squid ink tagliatelle with seared scallops and a lemon white wine butter sauce. And I asked her mother, I was like, where did she learn this? And she was like, to be perfectly honest with you, I have no idea. I think it's YouTube. And <laughs> um, 100% it's YouTube. Yes. Yeah. yes. Um, but so there's this amazing platform, right? So again, you can go down the route of, uh, you know, hearing so many things about food that you become scared of it, right? And, and, and it turning into that more orthorexic um, relationship with food. The flip side of things is that young people today are demanding more of food companies, demanding more of agriculture and saying, we want more sustainable food. We want to have food experiences that we know that we understand that are good for us, that are good for the planet. And they're just getting more hands-on with food, which is great. So They're learning how to prepare food. They're learning to appreciate food. They're thinking about the people who are harvesting it, who are driving it, who are um, putting it onto shelves, who are serving them. Uh, You know, here in Chicago, there's a a restaurant marketing research firm called Technomic. They've actually shown that behind millennials, the other generation who's spending the most on fine dining is Gen Z, which for for those who aren't, you know, the, 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 the geeks like I am about generational data, um, millennials were born between 1980 and 1996. Gen Z is 1996 to 2010. So Gen Z right now is anywhere from elementary school to college. Um, and that is the second largest cohort of people spending on fine dining restaurants in the United States. 
That's interesting. Bonkers. But think about, you know, the impact of MasterChef Juniors and Chop Juniors and and YouTube and all of these other cultural elements so that, you know, then there's the whole economic aspect of this and who are the Gen Z parents and the parents are giving them money to do these things. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of different factors, but um, the, the relationship to food is significantly different. There is an, a greater understanding, I think, of the connection between food choices and sustainability, food choice and nutrition, overall nutrition, the relationship between food and social justice issues. Um, it is just a level of critical thinking about food choices that is is unique to this young generation. I love it. I love the changes. There's so many things that I, I mean, I was born in 84. I feel like there's so many changes that I've learned just in the past week. I think I've used food insecurity twice in a sentence. And I was like, wow, these were not terms that were really shared. It was like, well, Mm -hmm. we just didn't have a lot growing up and we Mm -hmm. ate what mom made and we had spaghetti every Tuesday or something. And like, those were our meals. And, you know, thinking about how much has changed, how much we are exposed to. I always love to try to find the good stuff within it. You know, Mm -hmm. it's like, how can we embrace what's coming? And I love that this is where, you know, your book helps people understand that awareness of why we're doing certain things. Um, and then looking at it from, yeah, how can we implement healthy boundaries? How can mm-hmm. we re- like respect the process? You know, I've had a couple conversations actually on this podcast with farmers, you know, working in markets. These were things that like, I never really, I don't think I was hyper aware of any of that growing up. I mean, I yeah. didn't really control what the parents got from the grocery store. Maybe I'd have blueberries one week. Maybe I wouldn't, you know, didn't mm-hmm. understand all the healthy impacts of it. And, you know, coming back to the fine dining thing just the other night. Now my kids are lucky because their dad really loves, you know, he's a foodie. Um, Mm -hmm. And he asked him, you know, Jack, what do you want for dinner? And he's seven and responded with lobster. And I was like, lobster? (laughs) Like, (laughs) it's like a Tuesday. Whose birthday is it? You know, like hilarious. But like, how did that even come to mind? You know, a growing awareness of food is only, can only be a good thing. Absolutely. And I love that. Like, I mean, I I know this is all, can the parents jump in and help? How interested is the kid? But like my daughter is just learning how to do certain things in the kitchen. Like, I don't think I learned how to cook an egg till I was like 19. I don't know. I wasn't really interested. And meanwhile, she's doing, you know, nice sunny side up eggs for her and her brother and figuring out how to use tuna. And we talked about, you know, maybe a wrap would be better than bread or I don't know, you know, like Mm -hmm. having these really nice discussions about it. And I love giving people the independence and the autonomy around these important things because food is everything, you know, right. You can have a really nice, healthy relationship or it can be a really scary thing. I think it's having the power and the knowledge around it. And and the reality is we are in a particular moment in time when we are all suffering in a really unique way. There's record high rates of anxiety, of stress, of loneliness, of depression, of meaninglessness. And the beautiful thing about food culture is it is a legitimate conduit. It's a way for us all to find a sense of control and safety in our lives. It's a way for us to find community and belonging. And it's a way for us to find meaning and purpose. And you can create meaning in your life sometimes by developing a new skill in the kitchen or by nourishing others, right? Creating something and nourishing others. Um, I often think about, you know, the, the 
the run towards sourdough at the beginning of the pandemic. It's like, well, what was that about? Like maybe in part it was the safety and security aspect of this, of like people wanted to feel self-sufficient, but it was also a way to build a new skill to uh, participate in a new community for a lot of people through, through Reddit, through Instagram. Um, But also just to feel like you were accomplishing something during this really difficult period of time. But food has also become a way for us to take action on sustainability issues, on social justice issues. It's this kind of perfect, um, beautiful medicine for a lot of the current things that ail us. And that's why I continue to be so invested in food culture, um, seeing the power of it. It really is just about being mindful of the ways that you're interacting with it because there, there are, you know, there's ways that will improve your well-being and ways that will hinder your well-being. Um, and, you know, the other part of this is uh, when talking about Gen Zers and their relationship to food, Gen Zers are also spending an inordinate amount of time in general on screens. And a lot of my book is really going into the negative impact of technology on our health. And even just from a sensorial uh, perspective and connection to nature perspective. Young people today are less connected to their bodies, meaning less aware of their bodies. They're receiving less sensory stimulation, and they're also spending record low uh, amounts of time outdoors. All of those things are bad for our well-being. It will negatively impact us on both a psychological and physiological level. But if you can get a child into a garden or get a child into a kitchen, and sticking your hands into a bowl of sourdough um, or, you know, burger meat or whatever it's going to be, those things bring us back to our bodies. They make us think about the wider ecosystem that we're a part of. And all of those things are good for us on a multitude of levels. Absolutely. Having kids who have entered this like picky phase entered as if they've even ever left. But it's like, you know, (laughs) I have one that is like, we'll only eat beige food. And last night, I think we all got up and cheered because he popped a bunch of broccoli into his mouth because we cooked it a different way, you Mm. know? And it was like, wow. Or even, you know, just talking about giving kids that independence of doing it themselves. There's Mm -hmm. so much pride. Mm -hmm. I made said thing and now I'm going to serve it to my family or I you know, I grew these cucumbers in the garden. Like it's amazing. Amazing. And you know, it's interesting. I, even if you don't have the space in your place to have a garden, I know there's a lot of indoor stuff that people can Mm -hmm. do as well, but I was speaking to this wonderful farmer and it's like, you can go to places seasonally, of course, and like pick your own. Right carrots or whatever. I didn't even know you could do that. I'm so used to just thinking blueberries and strawberries, but there's so many different things you can participate in just to give people that connection to it. And it's huge. I notice it in myself. You know, I talk about it a lot when I haven't gone for my walks, you know, if I have my feet haven't touched grass or, you know, sand or something in a while, I start to feel very floaty. Like I'm not tethered to the earth properly. And it's such an important message to get across. And um, it really shows up in a lot of bad ways when you don't make that a priority. So I love that you're sharing that message. So where can people find your book? How can they connect with you? 
Yeah. So you can find my book wherever books are sold. If it's not available at your local bookstore, ask them to order it. Um, but I, I highly recommend going to, to bookshop or to Amazon if that's what you prefer. Um, also available on audiobook. And if you want to learn about me, you can just go to my website, eveturopaul.com. I have a separate website for the book. We actually hosted a book club series last month where we had a number of um, experts come in and talk about these topics. Uh, so one session was all about our relationship to technology and inundation of information. Another was about social media and um, teens and health and mental health. And then the third one was about awe and gratitude in our relationship to nature. So if you go to thehungrybook.com, you can uh, learn more about that. And separate from all of this, we didn't totally get here, but I also run a, a nonprofit called Food for Climate League. So if any of you are interested in the relationship between food and sustainability, you can check out Food for Climate League. Well, I'm so glad we were able to chat with you today, Eve. This was awesome. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Welcome, Dean. Hey, welcome. Are we friends today? <laughs> sure. Hey, welcome to me. Well, what? <laughs> welcome to you and anyway. So foodie yeah. of the family. Interesting conversation, foodie huh? of the family. Jeez, I wouldn't call myself that, but. I mean, I think you are. Yeah, that was a really interesting perspective on food. I had, I was kind of like, when I was listening to it, I was like, yeah, Eve. No, yeah, but what? Yeah. It was just, it was kind of brought up a lot of feelings and thoughts that we have. And, and you know, because I'm older I, and uh, I'm thinking about things like sitting down to a family meal that wasn't always this opulent spread that, you know, we have. In fact, I think, I don't think it ever was an opulent uh, spread that. Um, unless it was a holiday, right? Yeah, unless it was a holiday. And then it was about like a lot of really common dishes, but more of them. Mm-hmm. And stuff that was made, you know, from basic ingredients. Mm -hmm. I never saw a shallot in my life before I was an adult. And you know what? I think my mom... Well, first of all, if we have to get back to it, it's just like that. Okay, but you're bringing yeah, up a good lots, point lots because, you know, you use the word common and it's like recipes and ingredients and things that are available to you within the region that you're living, right? right? So now you have the internet where people are showcasing all sorts of amazing foods yeah. and recipes from around the globe. Yeah. And maybe you want to try it. Maybe you want to try your hand at making homemade sushi or, you know... She, I mean, she talked about this little girl who's making this like squid ink, et cetera, et cetera, type yeah. of pasta. And I'm like, what? Like that would not have been in my wheelhouse because I wasn't exposed to that as a kid. But now, I mean, the positive side of it is like you have so much information. Well, here's the thing. There's two types of cooking. And, and, and can I allude to the whole pilot thing in this a little bit? About, I mean, it's your experience. It's, it's very mess. similar. So there's two types of pilots. There is the ones that survive on uh, a developmental, uh, uh, developing their skills based on information that they constantly research. No one's bringing them information and forming it into or putting it into a form that you can actually practically use in the cockpit. So that goes with communication, how you deal with people, that goes how you fly the jet, how you uh, interpret information that the company gives you about the jet and your own company. And they use it 
practically. Then there's the stump the chump crowd. The stump the chump crowd is to find the most obscure information you could possibly find and put it into some verbal context that is meant to like make the other person feel like they should know this. But if you ever went farther and asked the question, how is this useful to, to us in a, you know, in, in situ, they wouldn't have an answer. And it goes the same for cooking. So you have Julia Child, you have Martha Stewart, you have Nigella Lawson, and that's just bringing up women in, in, in cooking because we're talking about, uh, we're not talking about, but those are the ones. Those that, are ones that you've Yeah, that all to, have yeah. like different signature uh, ways that they do things. And, you know, if you look at Julia Child, Julia Child went to the Cordon Bleu School and Julia Child learned French cooking. And French cooking is about technique. It's about fresh ingredients. Of course it is. But it's about technique. Mm -hmm. And how do you braise something and saute something and sear something and julienne something and dice something? And those, those are skills that you use in cooking. So now let's look at like what's happening with cooking now. A long time ago, we had a mutual friend and we got into kind of a... A debate and she talks about you know this and that oh isn't this lovely and oh it's just you know whatever if you take some whipping cream and a little bit of wine maybe an onion some kind of protein and you just fry up the onion and your protein and your garlic whatever and splash your wine in and reduce it and throw a little bit of cream uh, whipping cream and reduce it for 10-15 minutes you've got the best creamy sauce for a pasta uh, you've ever had is it are you doing it technically correct are you doing it like a traditional carbonara mm, probably not are you doing it in a way that is like an approved tech cooking technique maybe but the whole thing is like who cares you're eating because oh I quite like that I quite like making that meal it tastes good to me and I learned how to make it so that's just as important as learning the traditional types of way ways of cooking but the thing is that gets people is this like it's almost like they get in over their heads where they're just like you know why buy the ingredients for the special meal that you found on tiktok or whatever where a package of basil in our stores anyway is like six dollars mm -hmm. like a little package and rosemary about the same uh you want to make yourself some pesto well um uh, you know basil's not cheap Pine nuts are not cheap. Mm -hmm. uh, good uh, Parmigiano Reggiano is not good. Or is not good. Is not cheap. You're talking about making a pasta, a basil pasta, where the basil's costing you like twenty five dollars, thirty dollars, and you haven't even gotten to any other part of the meal. And then the time. Why are you doing that? Right. So on. So a couple points that are coming up is like one. Not everything is, is accessible. To everyone, right. right? So, you know, you t you bring up like, I'm going to make this delicious pasta. Um, maybe I didn't use all the right techniques, but you didn't post about it online. Right. Right. But now we're trying to measure up to 
these amazing chefs who maybe went to school and did all this cool stuff and like learned all these special techniques. Does it mean that you are less than if you didn't use all those techniques? I don't think so. No, it isn't. But the thing about it is, too, is that if you really want to learn how to cook properly, well, there's so many sides of it, right? There's the dietary side of it, like mm-hmm. what products are you, or what, what uh, are you adding together? There is the cooking techniques. There is, um, you know, the ingredients level. Like, you know, I like cooking at like the peasant level where you have some potatoes, mostly the kind of potatoes that you want. You have a bunch of onions. You have some dry spices. Um, you know, you have a, a fatty meat like a pork uh, or or a, a pancetta or something that you like to cook with. This is how I like to cook mm-hmm. because it's how people afford. It's like a home economic type thing. It's how people afford to cook. There is no need to be going to specialty stores, you know, within reason. Right. It's Get so it. interesting to talk about because even yeah. it's like, but if that's what you want to do, then do it. Yeah, right? if that's what you want to do. But, but then if but you're doing it for the wrong it doesn't reasons. Fit. It's like this. It's like, here I am. I don't have a job. If I, I'm going to go out of the house and I'll go find a tuxedo I, you know, I wore in 1985 <laughs> with the cummerbund. <laughs> what? And I'll head out and I'll just head out on the town. That's not me. I'm not dressing up to, to like, you know what I mean? So if you're cooking for, if you got a family of six and you're like, mom, what's for dinner? I didn't quite... Uh, like the ramalad and uh, you know the uh, the fugua was just oh it wasn't to my liking mom no 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 right you're not doing that you're pulling out a couple boxes of kd and maybe some sausages that you got on sale and you know mm-hmm. some milk or juice for the kids and then maybe a dessert of you know a scoop of ice cream that's the reality of it and everybody that's cooking and showing their food online like well, like she was saying, yeah. sometimes some people go and make these, you know, we were talking a lot about smoothie bowls. You make this beautiful smoothie bowl. But then like when you were done, you were like, well, I'm still hungry because it was literally just fruit that I just ate. Right. right? So now I'm going to have a pizza pocket, um, but I'm not going to post the pizza pocket because that doesn't really go with my aesthetic. Right. Right. Which I think is like a whole other you know, side of online presence and how we show up as regular people, how we show up as professional people online, like what I do. And it's like, you know, what am I, what's the expectation that I'm trying to live up to here? Envy. It is. I think it's to get people to envy you. And, you know, it also, you know, I don't know about you, but (laughs) lately my brain goes off in different directions. And, you know, you have, um, like, for instance, we start we started the candle business right mm-hmm. and we're selling lots of candles and you know i i uh even though i have don't have a ton of experience doing that i'm always researching on how to do it better and whatever but you sit sit back and you kind of go you fool yourself into thinking like i'm in my garage i'm cooking candles and uh boy i'm good at it and boy what if i was you know, recognized by the Candle Association of the world. And, you know, you, you kind of get into these things. And it, it makes you realize, like, you kind of put up this fake, you know. The bar is higher. Okay, and that, let's break that down a little bit. The bar yeah. is higher. Why? Do you know what I mean, though? I do, because you have been immersed in the information you know, you've been collecting information about how to make the best candle, the ingredients that are the best, the best, the best, the best. So your knowledge base 
and exposure and what you've been, you know, serving yourself online has raised the bar, yeah. right? I think in some ways you and I have actually just to kind of bring it back to reality here about what we've been doing with our meals these last 14, 15 months is that you watch a lot of food creators your feed listens to you talk about food and whatever and you get served all these things for like i don't see half the chefs that you follow to be honest that is not what my instagram feeds me right, right. so when you go to make dinner it's like the bar is higher where i come in and i'm like all right kids we're having some pierogies some roasted brock let's go right and yeah. i you know which works just great it does my my whole thing is is that i enjoy uh i enjoy food right and I guess it's like this Instagram versus reality. And we are focusing a little bit on the negative side of it. But I do appreciate like where Eve brings in the positive element of it. Like you are exposed to different types of recipes, different ways to put meals together that maybe you wouldn't have seen in your house with your upbringing, with where you live. Yeah. You know, you're living in, you know, the suburbs of Ontario um, and you don't know any Korean people, but all of a sudden you're making kimchi at home. That's so cool, right? Yeah, like you're cool, yeah. exposing yourself to different types of yeah. um, meals and trying well, I think there things. is a very positive side to that because you're right. You're absolutely right. You know, you're showing someone other than yourself, which really theoretically should be enough, but we like the acceptance of other people that, you know what, hey, look what, it's like, hey, look what I can do. Mm -hmm. Because like, you're not hanging around as many people nowadays with social media and all this type of stuff. So why can't, you know, and people give you a little like and they make, oh, that looks nice. And you go, thank you. Yeah. This is the whole thing is, is that. That connection. It's that a connection. connection. And it's like, it's just like, I'm going to, I'm going to like your stuff and show that, you know, you're all right and you're going to like mine. And together, this is our, our relationship in the, in the social media universe. There's nothing wrong with that. Mm -hmm. But what I'm saying is that a person shouldn't feel obligated to cook the same as like Gordon Ramsay. Their favorite Ramsey, chefs, absolutely. Which all you really have to do is just start screaming and just at yell people at people and i want there. love in my food i don't want angry i don't feelings. want any angry i know keep I your beef swear. wellington where it is i don't i'm not <laughs> well, into it dude and i think i'm on this mission and i didn't really know this until i started to like have conversations with people who are in the space and feel this pressure of like what are we sharing as content and how is that impacting others are we inspiring people are we making them feel like they have to be us like what's the vibe we're throwing out there and something that i'm finding is like you know we talk a lot about body positivity we talk a lot about um you know being neutral in that space and i also am looking at it like how can we create that neutrality in our homes like this idea of perfection is not realistic we That's all right. have like junk drawers and nicks on the wall and fingerprints around here that could use it an another coat of paint but it's just not on the list of priorities and similarly like with our food and our meals we are not bad people because we didn't make like the spaghetti sauce from scratch this right. week um you know the pierogies came out of a bag in the freezer because you know we were busy doing other things because we are well, we're, even we weren't busy what's, we, the yeah. what's the point of frozen food yeah i'm into it you know like where do we live we're not we're, less than we're, we're not all living in a market garden area you know where where we're wet market or whatever where yeah. we can just like oh i need some wild mushrooms for my blah 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 and you're just no, you can't do it. Mm -hmm. Like where are you supposed to go if first started to get it? Mm -hmm. And then how much are you willing to pay? If if we only had like, or, you know, whoever had a certain budget, you know, if you're 
that's it comes down to it as well where about it we're learning oh don't eat soy don't eat or eat soy don't eat meat don't eat this where does it come down to in these conversations about affordability of food because excess yeah how is this accessible is this if you take a bag of potatoes and they cost seven dollars or whatever and you think about like between four people, how long that bag of potatoes lasts, and then all the things that go with it. You know, if you're using cream or cheese or whatever to make your like casserole that I'm making today. Mm-hmm. I mean, you got to do that for the whole month for thirty days, and then, you know, how are you fitting that into your family budget? And the thing is, is that forget about fancy foods. You can't even buy like you know if you're into uh, uh, beef. You know what? Uh, you know what? Some like older crappy flank steaks cost now at the grocery store. I mean, you know, a thing of pork chops can be thirty dollars, mm-hmm. and you're having that for maybe one and a half meals plus the milk and all that type of stuff. I think the way that I would do it is like my mom did it. Is you know she would there be a little bit oh mom what's to eat and she go on the fridge you there's a little bit of this take a little bit of that and heat it up make a nice gravy for it. I don't know how to make gravy. Well, you take some beef broth, some flour, and some butter, and you, you know, mm-hmm. and and you learn these little tiny bits of cooking, you know, tidbits, and you apply them into your family. And it's, if you want to take a picture of that and go, you know what, I made this. My mom used to make this mm-hmm. or whatever. That's the type of stuff that I want mm-hmm. to see. But also, and and like, yeah. you know, I think it is a good. It is good to try. I mean, balance is an overused, kind of hard to attain word, but I think it's okay for some nights, you know, to have a lovely rich gravy and a roast if that's what you like to eat. You know, culturally, we like that. Yes, of course. We grew up with like those kind of Sunday roasts kind of thing is for sure as kids. And sometimes it's a, you know, spaghetti madness. And then we have tacos and easy dinner one night and whatever that looks like for you. Um, it's okay to switch around if sometimes you want to make this beautiful, you know, vegan dish with these, you know, amazing ingredients that you don't normally eat in your day to day. Like I say that because it's not something I eat in my day to day. You want to make that? Cool. Do it. Plan for it. Yeah. Um, you want to one night just have a box of KD? Cool. Like, you know, yeah. aside from all the health benefits, it's like, I think that it's like when we set this expectation that we have to be perfect. Right. And everything has to be perfect. Right. You are destined to fail. And there's going to be some bad shame feelings that are mixed in there. And I'm like, how do we avoid that? You know, and maybe how we avoid that is people like you and I, we share the real side of things. Like well, it, how it, we came about this, this potato casserole is we had leftover mashed potatoes. And you were like, what can I make with this? Yeah, right. And boom, this yummy casserole came to be. So I think that there's, yeah. I think it's a great conversation to have and to be reminded of and, you know, to show all these different ways that we can look at food in fun and creative ways with our kids. Yeah. Try new things. Try the lobster. Enjoy the usual, like, in, you know, nuggets and mashed potatoes we're going to have for dinner or whatever it is, you know, and just yeah. exist in but a don't normal. Put so much, like yeah. the thing is, is like you look at your life, you know, you, you want to go out and hug a tree or, you know, go play with your kids in the yard or whatever the case may be. You, I know because if I'm cooking like a big meal, if dinner's at six, I'm 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 cooking no later than 4.30. Exactly. Because I got all the prep and stuff. I, I like the way I do it. And, and you enjoy it. You know, you enjoy it, I but do. it is a process for sure. I do. I, I like to enjoy, I enjoy it. I put like my, my shows that I'm watching on my phone and, or music and I, you know, I have a glass of wine or eight and then <laughs> I chop up some stuff. 
Exactly. And, uh, I don't really have a way to wrap it up. I just think it's a great conversation to continue to have, to touch base why we do certain things, what interests us, and yeah. how we feel after we consume different types of content. Yeah. <laughs> right? All right. Well, yeah, that's it, it is. And you know, the whole thing is, is just, it's it, what I found when uh, she brought, when he brought it up about, um, you know, the relationship. I never really quite thought that, you know, the, our relationship with food is connected to social media. I mean, it's kind of like, really? Yeah, I guess it is. Well, I like to take pictures of my food. You do. I like to show the things that I've done. But, but just you, think, you yeah. know, this is a generation thing now. You know, you are, you and I, we're, I think, some of the last age groups to have memories of pre-social media and post. You know, kids now, like younger generations, it's they that's what they've all been immersed in. Social so, media. Absolutely. So, you know, you got to just keep having the conversations. Yeah. And that's that. Lots to talk about. Exactly. Well, thanks, Dean. Yeah. All right. We'll see you guys uh, next week with a brand new episode. Friendo Podcast is produced and hosted by me, Amanda Muse. Music on this episode is written by Chris Bevins and Mike Payne, performed and produced by MP Real Glow. If you'd like to help support the growth of Friendo Podcast, you can do so by leaving a positive review, sharing the podcast with your friends and community, and supporting the shop at hellofriendo.com. Find us on Instagram at shophellofriendo. And thank you for listening. And remember, be your own bird. Bird.